Hi, today I'm really excited to be here talking to Sandor Ellis-Katz. Hello, Sandor. Um, hi, Kate. It's a pleasure to be talking to you today. You've just um, finished a European tour, haven't you? <clears throat> yeah, um, I was mostly uh, in the UK for, I was there for about two and a half weeks. Uh-huh. Um, and also did some talks in um, Ireland and Belgium and Sweden. Uh-huh. How did that go? I bet people were really excited to hear from oh, you. Oh, it was, it was really great. It was really great. And, um, uh, you know, especially, you know, especially in the UK, I just had like big, you know, big, big enthusiastic groups um, everywhere that I went, which was very exciting. Mm. I'm sorry I missed it. Do you think you'll <laughs> be coming back? Oh, I'm sure. Um, you know, it's hard to say exactly when, but um, I'm sure I'll be back. Good, good. <laughs> so, um... I was introduced to your work um, quite a while back. I was in LA staying with friends and someone pointed out your book in Erewhon, the big store in, in LA, and said that that was a Bible. And she actually insisted that I buy it. <laughs> she was like, you have to buy this book. And that would have been, I think, probably 2009. Does that sound right? Was that when it was new out? The um. My my first book, Wild Fermentation, came out in two thousand and three, and then my most recent book, The Art of Fermentation, didn't come out until two thousand and twelve. So I'll bet I'll bet Wild Fermentation is the one that you were first. Yeah, uh, well, she said she said that everyone she knew it kind of really rated it as a bible, and people had been kind of really you know it was a really life changing book. So that's (laughs) that's why. that's why she recommended it and I um it took me still a while I think to really kind of get into the whole fermentation thing but when I got the book and read it what I was really impressed by what really kind of resonated with me was the way you talk about the whole culture of fermentation and the uh the important the kind of philosophical importance of fermentation do you want to tell us a bit about your your personal background and how you got into fermentation and and why you think it's so important for us well, sure. Um, I mean, first of all, let me just sort of like, you know, back up and, and just, you know, for, for um, you know, those of your listeners who, you know, might not really fully have a sense of what fermentation encompasses, um, you know, fermentation is the transformative action of microorganisms. Um, uh, you know, many people think first of beer, and certainly beer is produced by fermentation, but, you know, many, 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 um, you know, daily staple foods, you know, in almost every part of the world are produced by fermentation. Bread is produced by fermentation. Cheeses are produced by fermentation. In um, chocolate, coffee, cured meats, um, you know, uh, olives, lots of different foods that people enjoy eating are produced by the transformative action of microorganisms. Um, you know, I first... You know, I, I first got interested in fermentation through the flavors of fermentation as a kid growing up in New York City. Um, uh, sour pickles, uh, which are just basically um, uh, gherkins fermented with um, garlic and dill, um, were just one of my favorite foods. And I just have always been drawn to the lactic acid flavor um, of, of, of certain fermented foods. Um, I spent a couple of years in my mid-twenties following a, a macrobiotic diet, and macrobiotics really places a great emphasis on the digestive benefits of fermented foods. Um, and I started noticing that when I ate <clears throat> these, these lactic acid foods that I love so much, um, you know, I could literally feel my salivary glands squirting. <laughs> so in a very 
in a very tangible way, these foods were getting my digestive juices flowing. And, you know, certainly in folklore in many different parts of the world, fermented foods have been associated with good health and longevity. Um, and, you know, and science is, is absolutely bearing out, um, um, you know, many of those ideas. But what really got me practicing fermentation in my own life is... 21 years ago, I moved from New York City to rural Tennessee, and, uh, you know, among the changes in my life, I started keeping a garden, um, and the first year that I was gardening, um, you know, I realized for the first time that in a garden, a row of cabbage, you know, all the cabbage is ready at around the same time, um, so that gave me a practical reason to uh, learn about fermentation and start fermenting things, and, and really practices of fermentation, um, you know, have been born of necessity you know they are they are they are strategies for um, uh, you know preserving food making foods more stable for long-term storage or for transportation um, you know they're also used as strategies to make foods more digestible um, and also to make foods more delicious um, so there's there's there are lots of practical benefits of fermentation and I, and I think you know for for you know, maybe first and foremost, you know, fermentation is all about like food in its context. Um, and, um, you, you know, every, everywhere, um, you know, in all, in all traditions and all places, you know, where people are producing different kinds of foods, you know, the, the, the foods come in waves, you know, agriculture is sort of based on, um, you know, things being ready at certain moments of the year and really wouldn't be possible if people didn't have, you know, strategies for how to preserve food and, in order to get them through the rest of the year. So, I mean, I would argue that agriculture would not be possible without fermentation. Mm -hmm. And then to bring it back to the word culture, I mean, the origins of the word culture, you know, are, are in the Latin word for cultivation. So, you know, the, the, the origins of culture, you know, lie somewhere in the, the, the roots of agriculture. Um, and then also, you know, we use the same word culture to describe, you know, the little community of bacteria that transform, uh, let's say, milk into yogurt. Like that's, that's the culture that we introduce to the milk. And we use the same word to describe these little bacterial communities that we use to describe, you know, language, music, literature, scientific knowledge, belief systems, religious practices, you know, the totality of all the things that people seek to pass down from generations to generation. Um, <clears throat> well, it turns out that, you know, these fermented foods are a very important part of culture. And, you know, they're part of our cultural identity. I mean, you know, who could imagine, um, uh, you know, Western cultural identity without bread and beer? I mean, mm -hmm. these are just, you know, kind of, fu you know, fundamental to, you know, our, our, our daily routines and, and um, you know, the small pleasures that we take. And, um, uh, you know, um, um, you know, just the cultural reality that, that, that we live in. And, um, you know, in, in, in China or in, uh, you know, West Africa, the particulars of fermentation would be very different, but they would be no less important to people's daily lives. Um, and, and really, I mean, I would say that the reason why fermentation is so widespread and is practiced, you know, pretty much everywhere is that, you know, all of the plants and all of the animal products that constitute our food are populated by these elaborate microbial communities. And, um, you know, we, we see all the time the ways in which they can just decompose our food into something not at all desirable. And, you know, that's the... Uh, 
that's the source of, you know, all the food that we discard. But everywhere in the world, people, you know, sort of figured out effective techniques to sort of harness this, you know, invisible life force that's part of our food. Um, and by manipulating environmental conditions, we encourage the growth of certain kinds of organisms and discourage the growth of other types of organisms. Uh, and so we harness this force to make our food more stable for long-term storage, to make our food more digestible, um, and to make our food more delicious. Mm, brilliant. <laughs> um, you mentioned lactic acid a few times. Can you explain for people if they're not familiar how that, what that involves, what that is? Well, I mean, lactic acid is one of you know many um, um, you know fermentation byproducts, metabolic byproducts of the organisms that are transforming our food. So alcohol is one. Acetic acid, which is vinegar. Uh, is another um, lactic acid is uh, is another you know very um, uh, um, <clears throat> very uh, you know common fermentation byproduct uh, um, you know certainly you know yogurt um, and many different uh, types of cheeses involve lactic acid fermentations. Um, Sauerkraut, kimchi, um, uh, you know, many traditional salt brine pickles um, uh, involve lactic acid. Sourdough breads involve lactic acid. Um, you know, traditional wild fermented uh, uh, beers and, and wines involve lactic acid as well as alcohol. I mean, an important concept um, uh, in, in fermentation is that, you know, in the natural world, on the, you know, uh, plants and animal products that we might want to ferment, you never find singular microorganisms. You never find just yeast alone. That's very much, um, you know, a human invention, really, of only the last 150 years. Um, so you find these elaborate communities of organisms and which ones, um, uh, you know, will be active or which ones will be dominant, you know, just depend entirely upon um, environmental considerations. So what I would always recommend for people as a, as a first fermentation uh, project would be fermenting vegetables, you know, some, something like sauerkraut, but you could do it with any kind of vegetable really that you like. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, if you just leave, you know, a piece of cabbage on your kitchen counter exposed to air for a prolonged period of time, it will develop molds on it. And if it's a long enough time, if it's hot and humid, those molds could literally digest a head of cabbage into a puddle of slime that bears no resemblance whatsoever <laughs> to, you know, delicious, tangy, crunchy sauerkraut. Um, so the, the difference is that the prolonged exposure to air supports the growth of the mold. So the strategy for making sauerkraut is basically to get the vegetables submerged under liquid, typically their own juices. So, you know, you, you grate, chop, or um, shred, um, uh, you know, your, your cabbages, your radishes, your turnips, whatever kinds of uh, vegetables uh, you, you want to use. Um, lightly salt them. You don't have to be, um, uh, you know, highly methodical about that. You know, 2% um, salt, 1.5% salt. I would just say salt lightly, mix it all up and taste it, and make sure you're happy with the amount of salt. Get in there and squeeze or pound the vegetables for a few minutes, and what that does is... Um, 
It basically bruises them, breaks down cell walls, and starts releasing the juice that's that's abundant in all vegetables. And the idea is to get the vegetables nice and juicy, and then you can just stuff them in a jar, uh, you know, a, a, a liter size, um, you know, Kilner jar or something like that. A, a, a liter size will take about a, a kilo of vegetables to fill. Um, and so you just stuff your vegetables into the jar with some force, so that you're forcing the vegetables down and liquid up, so you get the vegetables submerged under brine. And then you just wait um, and, you know, taste it after two or three days, taste it two or three days later. And, and basically what's happening is the acids accumulate over time. So the flavor starts out mild and becomes increasingly sharp. And, um, you know, different people like it at different places along the spectrum. You know, in the agrarian tradition in Central Europe, they would ferment it for months and just mm -hmm. keep eating out of the same barrel. Um, you know, many contemporary people in the UK might prefer milder versions that only ferment for you know, a week or two. Um, and then if you don't want it to get any more uh, uh, acidic, you know, move it into your fermentation slowing device. And I would imagine most of your listeners have one of these in their kitchens. That's a refrigerator. <laughs> um, and um, and that'll just slow it down to an imperceptible rate. Um, and, and you can enjoy it. And, um, you know, really most fermentations are as simple as this. Um, you know, they're just a matter of, you know, creating... Uh, understanding and creating the environmental conditions that will allow the organisms you want to flourish. Mm -hmm. am, am I right in thinking that it's the lactic acid that produced the lactobacillus bacteria, which is the ones that are so beneficial? Well, it's, it's the other way around. The lactic acid bacteria produce the lactic acid. So, um, so yeah, and, 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 and this is the thing about sauerkraut and other, and other lactic acid ferments is that the bacteria themselves, um, you know, really can help to, you know, if, if we eat these foods without cooking them after, uh, after the fermentation, you know, they are densely populated by communities of lactic acid bacteria, which can help to replenish and diversify, uh, the bacterial populations in our own, um, uh, human intestines, and um, uh, you know, d despite the indoctrination that most of us have received throughout our lives, um, you know, growing up in the 20th century and into the 21st century, um, uh, you know, bacteria are not our enemies. Bacteria, you know, do not need to be eradicated. In fact, we could not, we could never survive without bacteria. Mm. Um, you know, bacteria give us a huge amount of our functionality. They enable us to effectively digest food and assimilate nutrients. Most of what we would call our immune functions are um, uh, performed by bacteria. Um, there's been a lot of you know, exciting new findings uh, demonstrating how bacteria in our gut are, are involved in um, regulating serotonin and other chemical compounds in our brains that determine how we think and how we feel. So lots of different aspects of our or, um, you know, physiology and functionality are dependent on bacteria, you know, and yet we grow up in the context of this war on bacteria, the ideology that bacteria should be avoided, should be eradicated, um, the chemical exposure to antibiotic drugs and antibacterial cleansing products and chlorinated water and all of these chemical compounds that really are designed to kill bacteria. So, you know, for us in the 21st century, much more than for people in the past, it's, you know, become important to consciously, um, you know, replenish and diversify these gut bacteria. Um, and I would argue that the best way to do that is with, you know, a variety of live culture foods, things like, you know, sauerkraut and 
kimchi, things like yogurt and kefir. Um, you know, really lots of different kinds of foods have live bacterial cultures in them. Mm -hmm. Isn't that, I think over 70% of our immune cells are in the gut. So when we're eating these immune, uh, these foods with these immune properties, it's going straight to feed those immunity yeah yeah I mean absolutely I mean the immune the immune system is definitely centered in uh, in the intestines um, and uh, you know and and we're learning that many other you know physiological systems um, uh, you know really um, um, have you know, important components of them uh, you know in the gut bacteria you know, we, we really only have the crudest understanding of, of our gut bacteria and how they and how they function. Yeah. Um, but 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 that hasn't stopped us from you know this um, uh, you know constant exposure to chemical compounds that you know that can really compromise them. Yeah. So to go back to when you were on the farm in Tennessee, I mean, obviously you you were talking about growing the cabbages and how that got you started. But how did you get from there to being? such an expert was it just a passion that developed how did you get the first book published yeah i mean i uh, you know i'm totally self-taught i mean i really have no background in microbiology or or even in formal culinary arts i mean i've always loved i've always loved cooking and figuring out how to make things from scratch um, you know, I, I'm very passionate about, about gardening. Um, you know, I love, um, you know, I love, I love, you know, growing food. I love being able to walk into my yard and, and, and harvest food, um, for my next meal. Um, and so, you know, I started, I mean, I started with sauerkraut and then I started making yogurt and kefir and country wines, things like elderberry and blackberry and raspberry wines, um, you know, then I started playing around cheese making and sourdough baking and, you know, then I kind of got obsessed and started, you know, learning about, um, you know, some, uh, you know, more exotic ferments that are, you know, mostly only eaten in, in particular parts of the world, um, you know, other than where I lived. Um, and, um, you know, it was just sort of a personal obsession. I mean, all, you know, all my friends, you know, would tease me about it and I'd always show up at, um, uh, you know, at people's dinners with, um, you know, sauerkraut and other fermented things to share. Um, uh, and then I got invited to, to, to teach a class, like my, some, some friends of mine, um, who were turning their family's homestead into sort of an eco education center, um, invited me to uh, teach a sauerkraut making workshop. And that became an annual event, um, teaching a sauerkraut making workshop. And I, and I loved doing that. And then one year in the summer of 2001, um, I spent the summer uh, in Maine uh, at my friend's place, and I was missing this annual uh, uh, event where I was teaching the sauerkraut making workshop. So I decided to um, write a little zine. So I, I basically self-published, you know, a small publication um, uh, with all of my fermentation uh, uh, recipes and wisdom. Uh, and as soon as I wrote that and self-published, and, and you know, went to the copy shop and made a, made a hundred copies of it, you know, I realized, wow, this would be a good thing to turn into a book. So, um, so you know, with the um, thing that I had already written and self-published, the little zine, I approached uh, I approached the publisher, and you know, I picked the right one, and they were responsive to the project, and I turned it, you know, I, I expanded it into a book, and that's that's the book that you were uh -huh. uh, the, the, your friend showed to you in LA. That's wild fermentation, and then you know what started as a book tour, you know, sort of just 
turned into you know a life of teaching about fermentation, and I did quite a bit of you know traveling, mostly around North America, but also you know also in the UK, also in Australia, um, and a few other places. Um, um, you know, teaching fermentation workshops and just the process of interacting with so many people talking about fermentation. I mean, a lot of people have stories. You know, a lot of yeah, yeah. a lot of people remember some pro- some practice that their grandparents were doing or, or you know, uh, immigrants, uh, you know, I heard a lot of great stories from immigrants about, you know, sort of foods from the places they had, uh, they had moved from that, yeah. that they missed that they could no longer get uh, in their new homes. Um, so, and also I had a website up, which, which is still up, wildfermentation.com. I have all sorts of fermentation-related resources, but I started getting, like, um, uh, troubleshooting questions, you know, yeah. people who had things go wrong and were trying to figure out what was happening. So, you know, that sort of caused me to do a lot of, um, you know, let's say more technical research, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, tra- learning more about the science of it, you know, understanding more some of the things that, that can go wrong. Um, and so, you know, really by, by putting myself out there as an educator, even though I, I was a self-taught educator, um, you know, the questions that came up and the stories that came up, um, you know, just, just, you know, became opportunities to delve deeper, uh, into it and, and to, you know, round out my education. Um, so, so anyway, I mean, I, you know, since I first became interested in fermentation, I, you know, I have not stopped, you know, investigating new things that I will learn about, um, and, and learning from other people and experimenting. Mm. Um, it's interesting. I think that even probably five years ago, I don't think I knew, uh, maybe a bit longer than that, but I don't think I knew anyone who made sauerkraut or had kefir or kombucha. And now if I'm uh, traveling around and going to other raw foods houses, nearly everyone is doing those things. You must have witnessed a huge explosion of interest in, in all of this stuff. Do you have any theories as to why it's getting more popular at the moment? And well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly thrilled to see that, 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 that there's a, a growing popularity of these um, practices, growing interest in it. I mean, the way, the way I think about it is, I mean, I think, you know, j- j- just as, you know, part of what got me interested in fermentation was, you know, just the context, you know, me becoming more connected to my food and having a garden and then suddenly you know, suddenly fermenting things just, you know, just became like a practical necessity, like a, you know, a way to extend the harvest. Um, you know, I, th- I think that, that um, okay, so, you know, I, I was, I was born in 1962. I feel like the, the early decades of my life, um, um, you know, our culture, I mean, certainly in, in, in America, um, you know, our culture was, you know, fully embracing the idea of convenience in food and, um, you know, centralized production, you know, centralized markets, um, you know, people were just thrilled to be able to, you know, spend less time in the garden, less time in the kitchen, and there was a, a full embrace of, you know, convenience and the, you know, sort of liberation that, 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 that convenience and food yeah. brought into our lives. I would say sometime around the turn of the millennium, um, you know, many people started waking up to some of the downsides of our convenience food mm-hmm. system and centralized food production. I started noticing that, 
oh, actually, the food that we're eating is really of, you know, diminished nutritional quality. And the, you know, practices that enable this kind of centralized mass production of food are actually quite environmentally destructive. Um, you know, and, you know, where agricultural production had historically been, um, uh, uh, you know, one of the real, um, you know, economic stabilizing forces, you know, we sort of had removed that from, you know, most of our communities and from the fabric of our lives. So, I mean, I think for, 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 for many reasons, you know, health reasons, environmental reasons, economic reasons, and, and more, you know, many people started waking up to, you know, the idea that, like, actually, it's important to be connected to the source of your food in some way. And so, you know, I think that we've seen an explosion of interest in, in farmers' markets, um, in um, uh, you know community supported agriculture or box schemes as they're as they're uh, known in in the UK, um, uh, you know I think that we um, um, started uh, you know pe people wanted to just understand the processes by which their food was produced and and just you know everybody in almost every part of the world eats fermented foods every day. So, I mean, it just makes sense that in a period where we're just getting more interested in where our food comes from, you know, more people wanting to have gardens, more people wanting to know their farmers, that, you know, wanting to understand the processes by which our food is produced, including fermentation, you know, would, would, would also be... Um, um, uh, 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 of greater interest, and and it's a really great way for you know someone you know who say like lives in a tiny flat somewhere to be able to produce a little bit of food for themselves. Mm -hmm. um, you don't really ne you don't need to have a backyard garden. You know you can do something like kefir in a jar on your counter. Mm -hmm. uh, you know you can buy your cabbage at the farmer's market and uh, you know make some sauerkraut uh, you know in a jar on your counter. Um, you know these these all are you know very easy things. They can just become, um, you know, basically rituals uh, in your life. I love how as well it's about sharing, isn't it? Particularly with things like kefir and kombucha. So you, you're literally building community because you have to share these foods. Well, and I think that, you know, becoming a, becoming a food producer is like that. And I, th I think that, you know, our, you know, our consumer culture has really encouraged us into this, you know, in fully embracing this all-encompassing role of consumer. Well, I mean, I just don't think it works for everyone to just consume, 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 consume. I mean, I think a more balanced role is to, you know be a consumer and a producer. So, <laughs> so yeah, sure. I mean, even if it's just one thing, even if you're just making, um, you know, a gallon of kombucha every week and sharing that with your friends, I mean, that's really significant to just have something you're making that you can, that you can share with people. And then of course with kombucha and kefir, because, you know, th those are, those are special cultures that we call SCOBYs, S-C-O-B-Y, which stands for symbiotic communities of bacteria and yeast, which are these cultures that actually have evolved into distinctive physical forms that get bigger over time, you know, in addition to sharing, you know, the kombucha that they're producing, people want to share the kombucha mothers that are multiplying in their kitchens um, and, and, and the kefir brains. So, so yeah, I mean, I would say that this, this sharing can take place, um, you know, on many different levels. Mm. How much of your own personal diet is fermented food? I mean, 
I presume you're having them every day, but do you eat exclusively fermented foods? Or? No, 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 I definitely do not eat exclusively fermented foods. I eat lots of different kinds of foods, um, you know, especially, you know, in the summertime right now when my garden is beginning to, um, you know, pump it out, I just eat all sorts of things. Um, you know, I, I think a diverse diet is really the best thing we can do for ourselves, and just because, you know, fermented foods and beverages are good does not mean that eating only them is better. Um, so, um, yeah, sure, I mean, you know, I, I like to, I like to eat some, you know, kind of fermented vegetable variation every day. I like to, you know, enjoy some yogurt or kefir, fermented dairy. I certainly use vinegar. Um, I make these uh, savory vegetable sourdough pancakes all the time. Um, uh, you know, I like to eat miso. Um, you know, I, I love to eat cheese. I mean, there's lots of fermented foods that, you know, that I do eat regularly. But, um, you know, I, I also like to eat, you know, fresh raw foods and, um, you know, fresh cooked foods uh, as well. Uh -huh. Do you make so, your I mean, I, 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 I mean, I don't follow any kind of dogmatic diet. I don't measure how much of things I eat. I mean, I would say probably, you know, no more than 25% of what I eat is, uh -huh. is uh, fermented. Uh -huh. And do you make yeah, your mo own? Mostly Many of these foods are used as condiments. I mean, they're not, um, you know, with the exception of bread, you know, they're, they're mostly not things that form the core of the diet. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're generally, you know, I mean, certainly sauerkraut and kimchi uh, and things like that are, are typically used as condiments. Mm -hmm. Do you make your own and buy from other producers? Do you like to sample other people's stuff as well? Well, I love to sample other people's stuff, sure. Sure. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, right now, right now I have a workshop going. This happened to me as I traveled around the UK. I mean, people, you know, people just coming, coming to my talk <laughs> and saying, oh, here's some, um, here's some fermented oh, salsa. Hey, can I give you a little jar um, of it? So, um, yeah, I mean, while I was in the UK, I got to taste lots of wonderful things that, um, that, that people had made and, uh, uh, and, and wanted to share with me. And that's, that, that's really, you know, kind of enriched my knowledge of fermentation and, you know, has made traveling really fun. <laughs> yeah, brilliant, brilliant. One that I've just recently been introduced to that I wanted to ask you about is kind of getting popular in California at the moment is the gin, the fermented drink, the gin. Do you know that one? Yeah, sure. So gin is very closely related to kombucha, uh -huh. very similar food. It's basically a, a fermented sweet tea. Um, you know, the main difference is that the, the, the sweetener that's used in John is, uh, is typically honey, where the, the sweetener typically used in kombucha is sugar. You know, there's there's a certain amount of hype about about John, and um, you know, there's a, you know, kind of a little bit of a mythology about where it comes from. You know, one of the interesting things about about you know fermentation is that you know we know very little about the origins of uh, of almost any fermented foods. You know, we might have a general sense of the geographic region, um, uh, you know, from which they emanate. But, um, you know, there's no recorded information on, you know, sort of when was kombucha first drunk, when was jung first drunk, yeah. you know, when was bread first made, when was beer first made, when was wine first made, when was this variety of cheese first made. These are all so old that they're prehistoric. Uh -huh. um, and so, you know, one of the things I've noticed working with kombucha through the years and hearing people's stories about kombucha is that, um, you know, there definitely, uh, you know, are divergences in the family tree. Not every kombucha mother is absolutely identical in every way. 
Um, so certain of them, are, you know, certain kombucha mothers are able to adapt to different sweeteners, to honey, for instance. Um, you know, some of them are able to adapt to, you know, not even being on 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 tea from the tea plant. So so there, yeah, there's this you know adaptive potential that's um, uh, uh, you, you know not consistent. Um, and so you know, generally, I think about John, you know, as as um, you know, a uh, basically as kombucha that has been successfully adapted to honey. Um, and I've worked with it a little bit, um, you know, because I do so much traveling, it's very hard for me to keep all these, uh, scobies going. Yeah. These, uh, the scobies are a little bit like pets and they, yeah. need, they need regular, uh, they need regular, uh, care and attention. Um, so I haven't really kept the junk going, but, uh, but you know, it's certainly, it's certainly, you know, another really interesting, um, uh, culture that, you know, maybe is a variant on John, you know, on, on, on kombucha, maybe it's its own thing. Um, you know, I'm just not completely sure. Brilliant. Well, Sandra, I could really talk to you for hours and hours, but <laughs> I think we've reached the end of our time. That was so fascinating, and um, I'm going to go revisit the books, and um, yeah, I hope to, to meet you next time you're in the UK. I'm really um, sad that I missed it this time. Okay, well, I thank you for your interest, and, um, you know, I want to encourage your listeners to check out my website, wildfermentation.com, um, you know, as well as my books, uh, uh, Wild Fermentation and um, The Art of Fermentation, and, um, and uh, you know, give a, give a batch of uh, fermented vegetables a try. So, thank you. Just sorry, before you go, do you want to just tell us the difference between the two books, if people are wondering which one to get? Yeah, sure. Um... I mean, basically, the art of fermentation. I had a decade more, um, you know, experience and uh, experimentation and research under my belt. Um, so, I mean, I would say that the art of fermentation is a far more thorough uh, treatment of the subject. Um, it's also much longer um, uh, for some people, much denser, and it also I've abandoned the recipe format. So, whereas wild fermentation is a book of recipes. Um, in the, the art of fermentation, um, uh, you know, there, there, there is, you know, abundant narrative information to, um, uh, you know, sort of, uh, uh, um, you know, do any of these things yourself at home, but not in a recipe format. So some people have found wild fermentation just to be more, uh, let's say, accessible. Uh-huh. Um, but but I think that you know they're both chock full of information, um, and you know I mean I, I would sort of say for anyone who's not intimidated by a big book with a lot of words, you know there's <laughs> there's a lot more information in the art of fermentation. Lovely. Well, thank you so much for everything you do to popularize this this art which is um so special and magical i would say <laughs> yeah yeah no it's very i mean i i think that that's that's a really important aspect of it is just you know here you are working with these invisible life forces and it really you know it really reinforces you know like a, just a sense of the great sort of you know mystery of the sort of invisible forces in the world um so it is very magical for sure well thank you thank you thank you sandor <laughs>